0: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system and also a very happy Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day 2021. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. This is our first episode of the fourth season of Decarceration Nation. I want to take the time to thank all of you for your support over the last three years. I'm very excited to be back, very excited to start up season four. This week, my interview is with Emily Wang and Bruce Western, and we'll be discussing COVID in prisons and jails. Emily Wang is an associate professor at the Yale School of Medicine and directs the new Seychelles Center for Health and Justice. The Seychelles Center is a collaboration between the Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School working to stimulate community transformation by identifying the legal policy and practice levers that can improve the health of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. Emily also leads the Health Justice Lab Research Program, which receives National Institute of Health funding to investigate how incarceration influences chronic health conditions, including cardiovascular disease, cancer, and opioid use disorder, and uses a participatory approach to study interventions that mitigate the impacts of incarceration. Bruce Western, our returning guest today, is a professor of sociology at Harvard University, a visiting professor at Columbia, and the author of many important influential books on studies about criminal justice, Uh, And uh, Emily and Bruce were also co-authors with a team of other experts of the book, Decarcerating Correctional Facilities During COVID-19, published by the National Academy of Sciences, and a recent white paper called Recommendations for Prioritization and Distribution of COVID-19 Vaccines in Prisons and Jails. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Bruce and Emily.
1: Thanks, Josh.
2: Thank you.
0: I always ask the same first question. Uh, how did both of you get from where you started out in life to where you were uh, found yourself working on the intersection between COVID-19 and prisons and jails? Bruce, you've been here before, so I'll start with Emily.
2: Great. So that, that I mean, where do you start, right? Um, you know, so I, I guess I, I would think... Um, it, if I looked at my, like, younger self as a medical student, I probably wouldn't have thought that I'd be a, you know, practicing physician, mostly doing research now at the intersections of criminal justice systems and health, um, you know, uh, I was fortunate, I guess, to say that, you know, I didn't have a family member that was close to me or a friend that had been incarcerated, and it was really by pure luck. Um, As a medical student, I was at at Duke University in Durham, and a girlfriend of mine was dating a guy who was running a prison education program, a college education program uh, in corrections, and um, in a very long conversation, started learning uh, uh, about the deep racial disparities in the death penalty. Um, And I had studied the history of HIV in college and not once, you know, at least in my recollection, did we really start thinking about how the structures, the institutions and policies that dictate our criminal legal system, how it impacts HIV. And so this really shook me to the core um, and during medical school, again, you know, uh, most medical schools, uh, as you all may know, uh, don't have curricula on how to care for people that are incarcerated, how to care for people that return home. And so I just uh, cold wrote a few uh, um, prisons in North Carolina and ended up working in a women's prison Um uh, in Raleigh and uh, it was there that i uh, you know saw young women my same age that uh, very much uh, uh, had kind of different life courses different life paths but could really relate to these young women um and started understanding how our criminal legal system has such a strong bearing plays such a strong role in the health of uh, uh especially young women uh, and men uh, uh from certain communities and kind of my career turned uh, from that.
0: And Bruce, what else can you tell us about your journey to this work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, last time we spoke, uh, I, I talked a little bit about, you know, I, I really started out as a, a poverty researcher uh, in sociology, not a, a criminal justice uh, person. And uh, but you know, living as an Australian in the United States uh, in graduate school, um, uh, the you know, the American penal system uh, uh, just loomed as such uh, an important uh, focal point for understanding uh, uh, poverty in America. Um, you know, the you know, flash forward several decades, and uh, I was working on a reentry study in in Boston, and I was uh, you know spending a lot of time with people who were leaving prison in Massachusetts and returning to neighborhoods uh, in the Boston area. And um, it was really striking, uh, striking for me uh, how people's health problems uh, uh, affected their reentry experience. I had uh, one uh, respondent, uh, a, a woman who I got to know uh, very well. You know, she was in, in, in chronic pain throughout the first year uh after her release from uh from prison had uh, many many uh uh physical health problems uh that uh, that she was dealing with and it completely overshadowed her uh experience of uh, experience of reentry and so you know health i think has become uh a a, a bit i've become more and more interested in the intersection of uh, health and incarceration uh, really over the last seven or eight years. And then just in the very recent past, uh, Emily and I had been working together on a variety of projects and uh, over the summer or just before the summer, uh, we got into a conversation uh, about the health crisis that was uh, just exploding in prisons and jails uh, around the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, we talked about what we might do to uh, to help meet that challenge.
0: So I wanted to start this season uh, with COVID in prisons and jails because, as the Marshall Project estimated, at least 329,298 people have become infected with COVID in uh, the system uh, since the start of the pandemic with at least 2,020 deaths. In my home state of Michigan, as of last night, we've lost 124 people and 23,335 people uh, have become infected in a system that has around 34,000 people in it. Uh, Emily, from a medical perspective, can you explain why you think this has happened and why the response to date has been, you know, I I think there's no other way to put it, but uh, why the response has been so ineffective?
2: yeah the the numbers really are astounding. And I think you know, uh, very much as you would indicate, I mean, uh, what i what I do uh, for my clinical practice is uh, for the past decade of taking care of individuals as they return home from jails and prisons, um, and we see them within uh, a week, two weeks post release and uh, to see uh, men and women return home from corrections and describe the state of chaos and fear. Um, during the COVID pandemic uh, has been profound. I mean, you think I've heard it all, and, and really it's just in a different state. Um, you know, it, it, part of what I think is important, and, you know, for those, uh, I, I often think about the medical colleagues that work around me that haven't stepped foot in prisons. I mean, I think some of it's predictable, right? If you look at past uh, respiratory outbreaks, um, pandemics, uh, prisons and jails often are places where um, uh, uh, diseases spread quite readily, and I think you know in this scenario, there's a number of factors that have caused for the increased vulnerability of people that are at, you know, living in correctional systems as well as working in correctional systems. And Bruce and I uh, and our uh, at colleagues. Um, report on this in the consensus report within uh, the National Academies as uh, Bruce referenced. But, you know, um, to walk into some correctional facilities, and I think it's important to note that a good number are really overcrowded. I mean, we've had a state of mass incarceration over the past four decades, whereby many correctional facilities are over their stated built capacity. Um, And and that's one piece of it. But it's also important that even in facilities where there isn't overcrowding, where people are packed kind of wall to wall or living, you know, double bunks in a gym, even if they are single celled, there's there's a lot of facilities uh, where people um, spend much of their time in congregate settings. Right. So, you know, uh, where they eat, where they shower, where they exercise. And so the uh, ability to socially distance is virtually impossible. Um, Other things that I think have placed people at increased risk um, are um, just the very fact that, you know, what we do know, um, about people that are incarcerated is that there's higher rates of chronic conditions that put people at increased risk for COVID. And this of course includes, uh, things like, um, high blood pressure as well as asthma. It also includes, uh, autoimmune conditions, um, and conditions that attack the immune system. And so there are many conditions that people have, uh, uh that then are putting them at increased risk for COVID. But I mean, I, I think one of the things that strikes me, and I think, uh, um, You know, much uh, uh, of what I spend my time thinking about is how uh, differently structured healthcare systems are behind bars, is that, you know, while there is... access to healthcare, a constitutional guarantee, that access um, is so different than you might see in the community. So, you know, um, for people who are incarcerated, if they're having respiratory symptoms, sometimes it's hard, nearly impossible to get the attention of healthcare providers. One of the things that's been really clear to us um, in talking to to physicians that practice behind bars is that um, they've been unable to get uh, tests at times, uh, um, in a timely fashion. And so, you know, ordering tests, uh, they're kind of deprioritized in terms of, um, where they are in terms of the state's public health infrastructure. And so the ability to get tests, the ability to get resources, the ability to even take care of people, uh, uh, patients who are incarcerated is, um, so defunded and, uh, deeply siloed from the rest of the public health infrastructure that kind of as a whole, um, it, it, what you're seeing now is just this increased risk of dying uh, behind bars um, due to COVID as well as kind of increased in, uh, transmission. And so um, it kind of, it's a whole of con- uh, factors, I guess, that are kind of causing um, uh, uh uh, this pandemic and pandemic to really spread and be hot spotted within correctional facilities,
0: yeah, I definitely remember when I was inside that um for instance you 'd have one doctor who came in kind of once a week and a couple of nurses, and then the whole facility you know thousands of people. Uh, would basically run through that system so it's definitely not set up very well for for a pandemic um bruce from a policy perspective what did politicians and departments of corrections get wrong at the beginning of the pandemic and uh do you see any mistakes that they've made since that time
1: yeah yeah i think at the at, at the very outset you know this builds on uh what uh what emily was saying right if we Think about the American healthcare system. It, you know, it's this vast uh, array of, uh, of, of of institutions, of uh, uh, of healthcare providers, uh, uh, a huge regulatory and oversight apparatus uh, has been constructed to maintain medical standards, and uh, and then there's the whole economic side of it. Uh, around billing and health insurance and so on that's completely integrated uh, into this uh, uh, system of, uh, uh, of oversight. So correctional health care, the way uh, in which health care is uh, delivered uh, inside prisons and jails, it's entirely separate. It has no connection to the US healthcare care system. It's not part of uh, the same Regulatory, institutional, uh, financial framework uh, that allows the uh, American healthcare system, such as it is, uh, to run from day to day. So, the big mistake at the outset of the pandemic, I think, uh, because of this dramatic siloing uh, of correctional healthcare uh, from the rest of the US, US healthcare system. Uh, the, the Prisons and jails were entirely left out of the public health discussion around pandemic uh, uh, preparedness, and uh, and you know as we've seen, uh, and uh, as you're talking about in in Michigan, prisons and jails have been uh, leading hotspots, leading clusters uh, uh, for COVID, and uh, and yet uh, you know they were not systematically. Uh, integrated uh, into the uh, the public health plan there wasn't uh, a plan for uh, testing there wasn't a plan uh, for uh, implementing distancing and quarantining and uh, and so on uh, that was part of the uh, the broader approach uh, to the r- response to the pandemic and you know thinking back to march and april when uh, the pandemic uh, was just you know beginning to tear through uh, uh, certainly Rikers Island uh, jail in New york city where uh, where I live uh, at that time and and the jail uh, uh, was not uh, at the outset integrated into uh, pandemic. Preparedness. CDC uh, didn't produce guidelines uh, uh, for COVID in correctional settings uh, until July. So, um, uh, the pandemic was uh, uh, already already exploding at that time. At a more general level, I think part of what's going on is that incarceration just you know, it creates these habits dehumanisation, the, the people inside uh, prisons and jails uh, are regarded as, as less than fully human. They're not uh, part of our conversation about the welfare of the population. And so, you know, we we there's this myth that somehow these institutions, prisons and jails, are isolated from the rest of society and what happens in there has no effects on Uh, uh, the rest of society. That's a product of that dehumanization. This very narrow view of what safety means, that's a product of uh, dehumanization. The idea that a pandemic could really fundamentally threaten community safety uh, falls outside of how uh, uh, criminal justice policymakers uh, think about safety. And so the the pandemic wasn't taken seriously as a threat to safety. Uh, and I I think that's because of uh, the way in which incarceration institution is really built on the dehumanization of the, the people who are confined.
0: And I think uh, this will build on this a little bit. I know that usually that, you know, when we talk about pushback, when we talk about things like trying to deal with uh, health care or things in prison because of COVID. A lot of times the pushback is that there's you know there's a lot of people out here who are suffering from COVID and they haven't done anything wrong, etc. Um, so Emily, how much more dangerous is COVID uh, in prisons and jails? Uh, and what is kind of the risk of it coming back into our community as a result of ignoring it or not dealing with it in the correct way?
2: Sure. So, you know, one of the places where I would start is that um, early on in the pandemic, our team here at Yale had the opportunity to partner with researchers at Stanford and um, uh, 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 Professor Margaret Randeau and her uh, graduate student Giovanni Malloy. And um, what we were able to do is uh, get data from an anonymized uh, large uh, urban jail and actually look at what is the spread of COVID-19 in this large urban jail? And found that the beginning of the pandemic in the first 23 days, I think, of the the outbreak, what they found, uh, what they were experiencing was that for every one person infected, eight other people were getting uh, infected with COVID-19. And this is inclusive of people that work there as well as those that are incarcerated there. So, you know, we've heard a lot about um, the basic reproduction ratio, which is kind of a measure, an epidemiologic measure of infectivity. Um, And so one person infected, eight others get infected. And that's higher than, you know, cruise ships, that's higher than at the peak of the pandemic in any commuting setting. And so, you know, um, while it's true that this is just reflective of one jail, um, what I, I do feel confident in saying is that it's extraordinarily high and especially high in congregate settings in that large urban jail and those conditions are likely similar uh, as you will find with you know the five other five thousand other correctional facilities and so um, it, it's not to say that it's reflective of all but it certainly shows that um, we see prisons and jails as places where uh, the the uh, um, Uh, coronavirus is concentrated because of these very conditions. And it is much, it is dangerous in those settings. It's also dangerous because of of the policies that uh, Bruce has explicated, which is that um, when people are incarcerated, they don't have control over where they're sleeping, how they're showering, how they even get healthcare. Um, Even the people that work inside don't have control over kind of how it is that they can actually get access to tests or vaccines. We're going to get there. Um, But so in those ways, Uh, There's real structural barriers for how you can actually manage COVID-19 in prisons and jails that's just different than in the free world. In the free world, even in settings where the rates are high, that basic reproduction ratio or the effective reproduction ratio is high. You still can make a choice. You still can access healthcare. You can get tests. Um, So it's kind of, I'd say it's differently dangerous in your inability to kind of control your own risk behind bars.
0: And what about the two-way risk, like coming back into the community?
2: Right. Um, And so undoubtedly, I mean, I I think uh, an important point is that people think of, you know, jails and prisons is out there. Oh, my gosh, what's that? You know, like, oh, that's a problem there. They're quite porous, especially jails that people move in and out of um, U.S. uh, uh, jails. And so, you know, uh, the number, I think, you know, it's depending on who you're counting and how you're counting, but range, you know, as high as 10 million move in and out of our whole correctional system each and every year Um, And then you have to think about all the other people that work uh, within correctional systems and the people that volunteer, the families that visit. And so there is a large community of individuals that move in and out of prisons and jails who are exposed to COVID. And so um, while uh, I haven't seen definitive studies, there is a study uh, that was published in Health Affairs that showed that um, about 16 percent of community transmission in uh, the state of Illinois could, uh, was associated with uh, this throughput, this in and out of Cook County Jail. And so um, all this is to say is that that which is happening in prisons and jails certainly affects that that's happening in the community and vice versa, that to think about them as totally different and siloed um, is just flawed.
0: One of the things that I heard pretty early on here in Michigan was that, um, you know, because of collective bargaining and unions that like correctional officers, uh, didn't have to get tested, uh, maybe didn't have to get vaccinated whenever the vaccine became available. Um, and that seemed like a pretty big problem to me, Bruce, uh, what have been some of the problems that you've noticed, uh, from looking at what people have been doing, you know, across the board in departments of corrections while you were kind of working on the book and the white paper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the issues around staff, uh, have been really challenging. And, uh, on our, uh, national academies panel, uh, John Wetzel, uh, uh, secretary of corrections in, in Pennsylvania was, uh, was part of the panel. And, uh, um, we, uh, met with, uh, Correctional leaders, um, uh, as part of the work we did, and uh, and, and staff issues uh, often uh, often came up as a big challenge in um, managing the pandemic. Uh, uh, number one, um, you know, massively, uh, massively at risk, and the the data that we have uh, shows that uh, correctional staff uh, have much higher COVID case rates. Than in the general population, uh, they're not as high as the COVID case rates for incarcerated people, but uh, uh, they're uh, they're much higher than the uh, the general community. So there's has created a very hazardous uh, working environment, um, and uh, part of uh, part of an effect of this is that uh, creates staff shortages. Uh, uh, people. Uh, are absent uh, because of illness Uh, and that's been a huge challenge for uh, departments of correction so implementing uh, all of the guidance on you know how to try and manage the pandemic inside with cohorting and quarantining physical distancing and uh, uh, wearing uh, uh, personal protective equipment dispensing it and all of that that becomes much more difficult when you're understaffed, uh, because uh, uh, people are getting sick. Uh, another thing that uh, came up, and this sounds similar to uh, the issues you're describing in Michigan, is uh, staff compliance, and uh, uh, and so uh, you know wearing masks uh, inside uh, inside the facility, uh, uh, wearing protective uh, equipment, and uh, being diligent. Uh, uh, in following all the uh, all the routines, uh, you know, we heard from correctional leaders that's been uh, that's been challenging uh, as well. And you know, candidly, uh, we heard that uh, oftentimes incarcerated people were much more comp- uh, uh, than staff in, uh, in 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 following those sorts of uh, in following those sorts of rules uh so i, I think it, there are just so many moving parts to uh, uh managing the problem of uh, uh the pandemic uh you know the the staff is staff is just uh one piece of it you know and another goes to the physical plant of facilities how they're ventilated uh ha- how uh housing units are laid out are they dormitory style can can people be single-celled which is Uh, so it's a, you know, it's such a multidimensional problem, but and there are a whole variety of issues connected.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, it's not just a problem of, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think of how people get sick or if people get sick, but it's also a problem of, of, of people are, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning dying, I think in the book, you all mentioned that it's a, you know, a rate of up to four times that of the general population. Is that correct, Emily?
2: Yes, that's right. It's three times right. Yep.
0: And um, uh, one of the ways that you all suggested, I certainly have suggested early on, and I think most advocates have been suggesting since the beginning of the pandemic that we could have uh, perhaps been more effective was uh, decarceration strategies. Uh, what was the case from a public health perspective for decarceration, Emily?
2: Right. So, you know, I, I think... Um, an important piece, and again, one that we explored in uh, this consensus report for the National Academies, um, was really looking at uh, decarceration as an important tool among tools uh, that could be used in correctional facilities. And you know, uh, the three of us have been discussing about the unique conditions within corrections that, um, for a variety of reasons that are both historic and uh, and still yet very present. Um, correctional systems and their design correctional systems and their overcrowding correctional systems and even how their healthcare systems are constituted and what resources they have have been uh, under-resourced and unable to actually manage a novel coronavirus respiratory outbreak. And so in that uh, scenario, um, what what I can say confidently is that... um, decarceration permits correctional facilities. By releasing those uh, who are at high risk, um, it it is both a move to improve public health and also public safety that, you know, as you're saying, people are dying inside, right? And so um, this is a time to really think about how it is that you can depopulate correctional facilities to better be able to enforce, it, the guidance uh, that is evidence-based, uh, which includes single selling. So, you know, people sleep to themselves. Early on in the pandemic, I mean, I saw, you know, um, guidance, guidelines that were coming down where, you know, you could still double sell, you can sleep toe to toe. Well, that's ridiculous. You obviously cannot. Um, if your neighbor is coughing at, or your cellmate is coughing and spreading COVID, that's just ridiculous. Or, you know, if you have so many people uh, within a correctional system, uh, and you're unable to actually appropriately get uh, um, it, the number of vaccines, appropriately be able to get number of tests, to be able to appropriately um, manage populations by cohorting them, there's just too many people inside. Then, of course, decarceration is a, an important tool, getting people out. Um, or uh, also reducing the number of people that go in um, uh, so that you're better able to manage. I think an important piece uh, that uh, is close to my heart, especially as as a practicing physician that takes care of people when they return, is that decarceration has to be also supported by robust supports. Uh, when people return home into the community. And so, you know, uh, we talked about this earlier of thinking about um, how it is that, you know, correctional systems are porous. People do come home and they often can come home to settings uh, that, of course, if without the supports of a safe place to stay, access to health care, access to testing and then uh, a way to kind of feed themselves um, and have an income. Then, of course, you augment uh, the risk for further transmission into the community, uh, thinking about their families and to which they return. And so um, I think in those ways, um, you know, decarceration can be safe and it's an important tool for correctional facilities, but it needs to also be done in partnership uh, with local social service and healthcare systems in and, the community. And,
1: Bruce,
0: um, you know, I know a lot of people will hear that and say, Oh my goodness, how can you let people out of prison? But there is actually a fairly strong public policy case for decarceration as well. I know you're familiar with the Sonia Starr, JJ Prescott work. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about kind of the public policy case for decarceration in the time of this pandemic? The,
1: you know, the pandemic has, uh, created, you know, such a a massive social cost and, uh, it's uh, you know it's it, it run the economy uh, into a ditch. We've uh, we've had historic unemployment uh, unemployment levels um, uh, for uh, people who are already struggling uh, economically. Uh, the the pandemic has made life uh, a lot harder. Uh, problems like food insecurity. Uh, have become uh, widespread in the the context of the pandemic. So there's this massive social cost. And prisons and jails are at the center of the uh, pandemic. And uh, they're contributing uh, to this cost that society as a whole is experiencing. And the pandemic is revealing so many of the failures of uh, our, our penal system Facilities uh, are old and poorly designed. They're often uh, they're often overcrowded. Uh, people uh, who are incarcerated often have serious health problems uh, uh, that are n- uh, not being uh, not being dealt with. And so, all of these vulnerabilities um, have just been uh, uh, revealed. Uh, uh, by the uh, by, the pandemic. So uh, the policy case. I think that is the policy case uh, for decarceration by uh, relieving uh, the pressure on the institutions, uh, getting people who are at very high risk, who are currently incarcerated, uh, out of these institutions, uh, uh, which are utterly toxic right now because of infectious disease. Um, that will not only have benefits uh, for them, uh, but the uh, the benefits will uh, redound to the uh, the broader society. You know, the, the the pandemic is is kind of an ethical litmus test because it doesn't respect um, you know the artificial distinctions that we've created between uh, victim and offender and, and guilty people and uh, innocent people. All our fates are tied together. Uh, by the pandemic and um, the well-being of the most vulnerable people in, in society is intimately connected to the well-being of society uh, as a whole. And so, I think decarcerating uh, in in this context is vital uh, for the safety and security uh, for the entire uh, the entire society. And I think if you know if we can make progress on this, if we can. Get this right, we'll also be much better prepared for the next pandemic, uh, uh, which seems inevitable. Prisons and jails have always been centres of in, in infectious disease, and uh, uh, I think we're always waiting uh, for the next uh, the next pandemic. And if we can if we can make progress on policies for decarceration, uh, you know that's that's going to help preparedness and. Uh, it, it's going to reduce the toxicity of the penal system, uh, in our society more generally.
0: Yeah. You know, I think some people, you know, when they hear this will say, you know, yeah, sure. You know, we're all tied together and this is a danger and all this kind of stuff, but do you perhaps make, uh, save people who are incarcerated from, you know, from getting infected or dying from covid but also potentially create uh, problems with recidivism. And I know there's a decent amount of research that kind of rebuts this. Uh, you know, if, do you have any thoughts about kind of the public safety part of the case? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, I think uh, Emily put her finger on it when uh, she said that, you know, any strategy for decarceration uh, has to have reentry as uh, uh, a key component. And, uh, and, you know, the, the kinds of things that are important uh, in a pandemic uh, are, are also make a lot of sense uh, uh, for safe and socially integrative reentry policy. Particularly, I think, things like uh, continuity of healthcare um, and having uh, healthcare uh, coverage and uh, providers ready and waiting uh, in the community for when people are released. Uh, security of housing. Uh, is super important, and I think uh, particularly in under pandemic conditions, um, if there are ways uh, to house people uh, coming out uh, in private households uh, where they can um, isolate, be in a socially supportive setting, uh, that's really helpful. And that partly means supporting uh, the uh, the families uh, of those who are coming home. Uh, and helping to alleviate the strains on them Uh, if, you know, if they're uh, opening their homes to to loved ones who are uh, coming out from incarceration. And the third thing is uh, income support. Uh, You know, there's just so much material hardship um, immediately uh, after incarceration, meeting basic needs uh, uh, for things like, uh, you know, food and shelter. Uh, is uh, just fundamental to uh reintegrating uh in a safe way uh, in a way that uh, supports public safety so i think you know my view is that we can we can get there we can get to uh decarceration if we're uh on a on a significant scale if we're properly prepared to support people when they come home
0: and i think that's probably the crux of uh the, the the next question um you know, either one of you can take a swing at this, but, you know, it seems like you're suggesting, and I obviously agree with you, that we need better health care. We need better uh, support for when people come back in reentry. We need more uh, decarceration. We need all these things. Uh, but what we're lacking, it seems, in a lot of places is political will. I mean, there's certainly some governors who've stepped up, but quite a few of them have quite gone the other way. Uh, so, do you all have, after you've been doing kind of, you know, the circuit on this stuff, have you, do you have any thoughts on how we're going to get people uh, to where they should be uh, from an ethical perspective and also from a public safety perspective so that some of these changes can happen? I mean, we're certainly not seeing, you know, widespread decarceration or, or, or anything else uh, across the country, despite the incredible costs so far in prisons.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, um, but uh I think you know, there are a lot of signs that the larger criminal justice reform conversation was shifting and uh becoming uh, more ambitious. Uh uh you know, drug policy reform as as um, you know uh, caught fire uh, across the country and uh, I think a, a new kind of national consensus is uh, is is forming around that. Uh uh, the challenge of uh, changing our public policy response to people who have been convicted of uh, violence—I think a public conversation was uh, uh, was opening up on that front—and uh, we're now sensitised uh, to the medical vulnerability, the health vulnerability of uh, of people who are incarcerated. So I think all of that was happening, right, when uh, when COVID. Uh, uh, COVID comes along, and um, and and opposition uh, to decarceration uh, and uh, reform efforts uh, is also uh, gathering uh, gathering momentum. Uh, and I think you know this is uh, this is our challenge. I think is you know, figuring out uh, how to meet uh, this opposition, which is often. Uh, very well uh, organised, often centred in uh, law enforcement and uh, among prosecutors, even though public sentiment is supportive of a much more rehabilitative, socially integrative uh, approach to people who have come into conflict uh, uh, with the law. And I think part of the answer has to be... uh, you know, greater organisation uh, on uh, on the reform side, and uh, uh, more community organisation, more community voice uh, in meeting the opponents of uh, a, a more humane response uh, to harm, and the you know the tangled mess of problems of you know racism and uh, uh, health and uh, and poverty that all just concentrates in the criminal justice system.
0: Emily, did you have any
2: thoughts? Yeah, one thing I would add to it's interesting. um, You know, I'd say, you know, especially during the summer when we were working through this consensus report and looking at the numbers, you know, it it looks like actually the number of people held in prisons and jails went down by, you know, like more than 20%, right? And then when we dug in a little deeper, we found that there's real differences between jails. There's far more people that are released from jails than prisons. Um, not by more than 20%, I just misstated, by 10%. But in jails, it was about 20%. And then state prisons is about 5%. Um, And one of the things, though, that, uh, you know, we noted was that it was a, um, a real passive kind of depopulation, right? The courts closed, police just started, stopped arresting people, right? Like our, our country shut down in certain ways. Um, um, but what I did find interesting was that even when there was the political will, even when, you know, kind of people in executive branches and governors would step out and state that there was the need to release people that were of high risk that oftentimes our bureaucracies for compassionate release, medical release, our ability to respond to pandemics, um, was really stymied, you know, at the level of kind of how it is that you get a person released on medical parole or compassionate release or anything um, that would enable the appropriate public health levers uh, to be enacted to better protect um, those that are incarcerated and those that work there. Um, and so to me, that that's also part of the story here. It's not just the kind of, um, it, um, you know, uh, deep dehumanization of people that are incarcerated and unwillingness to go there, at times people, you know, governors were, and we still couldn't get people out and home and safe. And so um, to me, that's a lot of the work that has to come now is is interrogating why is it and what is it that needs to happen so that uh, now we're still in the middle of um, large scale community outbreak, and then also for future pandemics, what needs to be happening to change those policies? And those are oftentimes legislative actions or even just practice changes um, that uh, consider uh, the ways that people can be released, how courts operate, how police, how you know, uh, parole boards operate, but also how the health system operates, how um, the housing is. Uh, um, is more inclusive of people that have criminal records, how it is that we can more quickly provide income supports to those who are returning home.
0: Um, you know, I'll admit to some frustration after, you know, eight or nine months of pushing for this, uh, these kind of changes, um, you know, I've reached a kind of the place in my own advocacy where I'm pretty profoundly cynical about most of these things happening and uh, at the level mm-hmm. necessary to serious the risks of death. Um, you know, you recently co-authored a, a white paper about vaccinations. So I'll start with Emily, uh, you know, sh- how do we, you know, should people in prisons be prioritized at a high level, uh, you know, the same as say health workers or whatever? How should we how should we be prioritizing uh people for the vaccine who are incarcerated?
2: It- Um, So, you know, my short answer is yes, they should be highly prioritized. And, you know, I think that for me and looking over uh, the guidance forward uh, over the summer, the National Academies also convened a a group of experts that uh, came up with a prioritization scheme based on the evidence uh, and based on the science and based on an equity lens of who ought to be getting vaccinated um, and in what priority. And given the uh, increased risk of transmission, but in particular, the increased risk of death and dying um, and suffering uh, from corrections, um, that consensus report came down and said that um, people who are incarcerated because they're at increased risk, because they're unable to kind of navigate their um, own health or, or uh, mitigate their risks uh, compared to those in the general population ought to be prioritized. Um, and even uh, um, what they said was that, you know, in each category. So in that report, healthcare workers, let's say, were at the top of that list. That correctional healthcare workers ought to then also be at the top of the list. The next on their list were people with chronic health conditions. Those uh, that were older. Then again, those people that are incarcerated that met those criteria ought to go in that round. And then, at large, in the second round. Um, people uh, that were incarcerated, all people that were incarcerated ought to go. So they really prioritized uh, uh, um, the whole ecosystem of corrections. Those at work and those that are incarcerated ought to be prioritized. Um, and it just makes sense. That's where the, we have uh, it, massive outbreaks, higher rates of death. People are at, really placed at increased risk uh, within corrections. And so vaccines ought to be distributed there And they are so in certain states, and then in other states, of course, because the states can decide their own prioritization schemes um, are either not included in the plans or uh, or deprioritized.
0: I know we've recently seen pushback in a number of states to vaccine prioritization. Uh, Governor Polis in Colorado, for instance, discarded the recommendations of experts and downgraded providing incarcerated people access to the vaccine. You know, multiple different states have different schemes. Uh, you know uh in Michigan, you know certain people are prioritized in phase one, some are in uh the 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 bulk are in phase two, and in some states they're just not prioritized at all. uh my understanding is Governor Cuomo has refused to prioritize folks uh you know what are your thoughts about this Bruce?
1: yeah, I think um the you know if you if you're guided by evidence uh the you know the health argument seems. Unassailable that there's no reason to differentiate the priority of, of correctional officers from the priority of incarcerated people. Incarcerated people should have exactly the same uh, priority as um, uh, as as the staff of uh, of prisons and jails. People are uh, e- equally uh, equally exposed and. Uh, the ramifications of uh, both getting sick and uh, transmitting the uh, the virus to others uh, are, are the same. And uh, you know, Governor Cuomo has held himself out as uh, taking an evidence based uh, public health uh, approach. And he you sure know, has. The, the, and and the only reason I can see that you would uh, you would uh, distinguish incarcerated people from uh, from prison and jail staff. It's because you're still in the grip of an ideology of dehumanisation in which incarcerated people uh, are, are less deserving. Uh, uh, but uh, this carries uh, enormous, uh, enormous risk and, in, you know, I, I think now is the time uh, for an evidence-based public health policy and you know, if, if, if you believe in such a policy, uh, then, uh, uh, incarcerated people should have equal priority with CO. And Emily, I think a lot of
0: incarcerated people have a lot of trust issues with healthcare and with, uh, departments of corrections. They're also highly suspicious of vaccines. If you could go inside as a medical person who cares about these issues and talk to folks in prison, what would you tell them about vaccination?
2: Yeah. You know, a uh, uh, that there's a lot of mistrust issue. The health system, healthcare providers, um, have created systems that are discriminatory, that are uh, off-putting, um, and really, I think, at times, have diminished um, uh, the health of of uh, people who are incarcerated. Um, and so, you know oftentimes the conversation is like, well, they're so mistrustful and how could they be that way? That That is strategic and life-preserving to be mistrustful. So good for you. Um, but what I would say is this, is that, you know, in, to my patients who are coming home from corrections, I mean, and also to those that are inside, um, you know, the concerns that I've heard, I think are important ones. We all have these concerns, you know, and some of the things I would say is that, um, uh, to start, people have said, you know, like, oh, they've hustled them up, right? Like, how could they possibly have created a vaccine this darn quickly? Um, and it is true um, that the vaccines have been tested uh, quicker, but the science behind these new vaccines has been going on actually for decades. And when you see things called like Operation Warp Speed, what it is, what's happened is that all of a sudden, instead of it being like a rush job, quick science, all we've done is said, you know what, every person, every all the millions of scientists that have put their brains around this issue now are going to be working on it for 24 hours a day, and the federal government did invest a ton of resources into studying it quicker. And so it's not that the quality of the studies are worse, it's just that we've put in a lot more resources to study it. So these vaccines are not a rush job. Um, the second thing I would say is that you know I've heard a lot of my patients be concerned that um, Uh, that you're inserting someone's DNA. um, And uh, there's no such thing. There's no insertion of a DNA. These are messenger RNA viruses, uh, vaccines uh, that are not a piece of anyone's DNA. It's just like a code book that's going in to tell your own immune system how to fight against the coronavirus. Um, That in fact, uh, this vaccine Um, is even more effective than I might have imagined at preventing uh, severe illness and preventing death. And so it's, I think... Um, something that I would say is that they have every right to be mistrustful, every right to ask questions, um, and every right to demand that there would be kind of this forum in place to really look at the vaccines they're getting, ask the questions they want, and then make certain that they have the aftercare. Um, another question that I've gotten a bunch from patients is, uh, you know, what are the side effects? You've heard about it, allergies Um, and even, you know, anaphylaxis. And I think it's important to note that, you know, of the millions of doses that have come forward so far, um, there was a recent report just that came out this week, 21 people have had uh, anaphylaxis. No one died. Not a single person has died. These are all people that had allergies uh, beforehand. And what's important to note is that if you should be watched. Um, probably for about thirty minutes after getting the vaccine, and so these are the things that if you uh, have questions, you should ask. Insist that you have a safe place um, for someone to monitor you before uh, getting the vaccine. Um, I think are all really important places. But um, to me, I mean, these are core questions uh, that you know before you get any vaccine, you should really know the safety and the uh, kind of effectiveness of this and. This is a safe vaccine that's been developed over decades, um, tested quickly because we've pushed our national resources into it, um, and um, the ways to kind of protect your own safety is to ask a ton of questions and to make certain that someone's watching you for 30 minutes after you get it. What a
0: really great and informative uh, discussion this has been. Uh, This year, I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice-related books that they might recommend to others. Do either of you have any favorites?
1: I yeah, the uh two thing couple of books that I've been uh really impressed with lately uh Nikki Jones's book The Chosen Ones. Uh Nikki just won the American Society uh for Criminology Book Award uh just a, a beautiful um, ethnography of uh uh men who have been incarcerated in the Bay Area and uh, are working as violence interrupters. Uh, and Dave Harding and Jeff Morinoff and their colleagues has a great book on uh, re-entry called On the Outside. And so both of those books, The Chosen Ones and On the Outside, are terrific. Emily, did you have any?
2: You know... Um... I, I too, have uh, read Nick Jones's book, and so I think that that's a a great recommendation as well. I recently just finished Homer Venter's book, and now the title is uh, I finally finished it. Um, And um, that for especially uh, folks that don't have a sense of what it feels like um, to kind of walk through the healthcare system behind bars. He used to be the former medical director of... um, uh, care within Rikers, I think is uh, pretty illuminating as well.
0: I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What questions should I have asked but did not?
1: No, I think we, we covered everything. I I regret <laughs> missing Emily's uh, audio over over the last 15 minutes, but I feel like we covered everything.
0: Emily? Great. Yeah, I don't have anything else. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank both of y'all for doing this and for uh, helping us start out the season on a, on a really important note. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank Thanks so you. Much, Josh. Okay, bye-bye. And now my take. When we take away people's rights and the ability for them to take care of themselves, we have to take responsibility for their care. We are dramatically failing in our responsibilities to take care of people in our prisons and jails during this pandemic. Incarcerated people are getting infected and are dying at a rate that is much higher than the rate out here in the free world. Healthcare is worse for them, and it is impossible for people in our facilities to socially distance and protect themselves. When people do get out, there's no continuity of care or social support. So far, after nine months, Most of our elected officials are either too stressed or too scared of the political consequences to either decarcerate or to provide priority access to the vaccine for our incarcerated populations. Meanwhile, people continue to die, and none of them, not a single one, was sentenced to die from COVID. Nobody is going to help them if we don't get involved in trying to make sure our politicians know we need to help our incarcerated brothers and sisters. Saving lives is going to be on us. And the longer this goes on, the more people will die. We absolutely must do whatever we can to make sure vaccines get to the people who want them in our facilities as quickly as possible and decarceration happens whenever and wherever possible. Please let your governor and legislators know that they need to prioritize incarcerated people for getting access to the vaccine as soon as it's humanly possible. This is supported by the CDC, the National Academies of Sciences, and many other experts. If we believe in evidence-based and science-based reform, and we wanna save lives, we need to insist that every incarcerated person and every correctional officer gets vaccinated as soon as it's humanly possible. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or given a donation in the past. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and to Ann Crespo, who helps with our transcripts and graphics. Also to Alex Mayo, who's helping with our running our website. Make sure and add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Decarceration
1: Nation. See you next time.